0: Hear about your trip to Israel and what that was like because the internal politics of Israel are, for the past few years, have been an absolute mess. They've held, I don't even know how many different general elections. Either side can't seem to actually hold a coalition together. They're constantly campaigning. And when they're in campaign mode, the way that they try to garner more votes is to try to be as hostile to their neighbors as possible and to be as onerous and ugly as they possibly can to people like the Palestinians and to Syria and to Jordan. And it's concerning to me. I'm not really sure how this is going to play out.
1: Yeah. So I think you described it exactly right, that this is the dynamic in Israeli politics, that the more militant they are in opposing Palestinian aspirations, the more they double down on security stuff, the more popular they are. And this is plays itself out in the peace process or the lack thereof that the Israelis can't even meet with the Palestinians right now. Any Israeli leader who tried to negotiate with the Palestinians, it would be the collapse of his government. His coalition would fall apart. So even if you could have Yitzhak Rabin or whoever your ideal Israeli negotiator is in power, but them in this Israeli politics would not constitute an Israeli partner for peace because they just wouldn't have the political capital, the political mandate to make the kind of concessions that they would need to in order to get a resolution to the conflict. And with Yitzhak Rabin, obviously, he made those concessions it didn't collapse his government but it cost him his life and that obviously has resonated and no one wants to lose their job even more so they don't want to lose their life and you see a real lack of interest in even talking about this as an issue in israeli politics it's, it's not part of the debate at all so our trip the group that i'm with it's called the peace consultancy and what we're really looking at is how do you find a way around this impasse? How do you deal with a situation where there's no Israeli partner? On the Palestinian side, while Mahmoud Abbas rules over the West Bank, they're split internally between Hamas in Gaza and the PA in the West Bank, and it's not clear who, who can speak for all the Palestinians. And then you have in the United States. The first president that I can recall who has taken so little interest in this issue—at least Trump and Kushner—at least they were interested in something, if for no reason other than that they wanted to win a Nobel or something. They, <laughs> they, at least, you know, were trying. Biden comes there and he says the time is not ripe for negotiations, but you know. We'll work towards a process to have a framework where we can do something in the future. He literally says at the end of his meeting with Abbas, he says, well, I'm going to Bethlehem now. I'm going to the the church there. I'll say a prayer for you. Pray for you. And it's like, who are you praying to? You know, <laughs> you're the you're the leader of, of the most powerful country in the world. Dude. Gosh, if, if only there was someone who could do something. So, right, right. so we're all looking the, for the guy who did this. The, Right. Exactly. It's not only how do you find a way around the Israelis, it's how do you find a way to move forward, given the fact that the US has no interest in doing anything about it. And to us what that means is you have to move away from this model of that we had in Oslo that's the US in the middle, some Palestinian leader, an Israeli leader, and you just try to hash it out. This leader to leader mediated approach only works if they're serious partners on all sides. And we don't have that. The Palestinians do not, as of this moment, have a real strategy for moving around this. They're trying to do things in the United Nations, but they're doing things that they know aren't going to go anywhere. So trying to, for instance, apply for full membership as a state, that has to go through the Security Council. The U.S. has made very clear to the Palestinians that if they push it, they're going to veto that. So it's not going to go anywhere. And the U.S. has been lobbying behind the scenes to make it so it's not just the U.S. doing that because it's embarrassing for us to have to do this. So we got the U.K. and we've been pressuring some other states as well. And there's reports this week that actually Abbas may back off of this altogether. Our idea is you have to go through the General Assembly. And what can you do through the General Assembly There's very little that you can do because they can't create binding resolutions. But what you can do is you can create what's called the UN Special Committee on Palestine. And this is what was created in 1947 before the partition resolution that actually they create this uh, commission. They send all these investigators there to interview the Palestinians, the Israelis, and then they come up with their plan And they bring their plan back to the Security Council, the Security Council takes a vote on it, and that's it. That's how it went in 1947, except that the the Palestinians boycotted it. They said, this is BS, this is our place, why are we negotiating on how to lose some of it? So they didn't talk to any of the investigators, surveyors who were coming there to see what's a mutually acceptable resolution the israelis the zionists were very smart they said oh no they're we're going to influence this so there'd be like a uh, a norwegian un investigator there and he'd be walking around and he'd just happen to run into some zionist from norway and he'd say oh you know this is what a coincidence when you come into my house we'll give you dinner let me tell you about how much i value this place and that place and there'd be a million instances like this you know a cuban zionist a zionist from australia And you got a fairly one-sided resolution, which was not acceptable to the Palestinians. And they rejected it. And a year later, you had the war. And Israel made territorial gains in the war. And it's been downhill ever since for the Palestinians. They've just been losing and losing. Our idea is that they need to reconstitute this commission It needs to come back. And this time, the Palestinians won't make the mistake that they made in 1947. This time, they'll talk to the commission. And the commission will go to the refugee camps. It'll talk to the refugee diaspora. It'll go to Gaza. It'll go to the West Bank. It'll talk to Palestinians in East Jerusalem. And it'll try to talk to the Israelis as well. But we think that just as the palestinians boycotted in 1947 we think that the israelis will boycott this process as well because they'll say the same the same thing this we we're good with what we the situation right now we don't need a imposed solution from the united nations there's all kinds of acrimony between the united nations and israel historically we think that they'll boycott that and from the perspective of trying to get some real momentum and popular support behind this on the Palestinian side, all the better. If Israel is saying, we want nothing to do with this, we think that actually a a movement that's saying, well, look, the Palestinians support this, we think that that'll really take hold. And I guess, well, let me let me stop there and see if you have questions because it's more complicated than that.
0: But it's an incredibly difficult situation because the the context in which Israel is set up is that there is a religious minority in the world. Like there are not many Jewish people in the world. So a few tens of millions, right, it's not many. It's religion. And there are many different people who tie an identity to it. So there are people who never been to synagogue, right? <laughs> never had a bar mitzvah, never read the Torah, never did anything of the sort. But at the same time, would consider themselves Jewish because they come from that line. And so it's it's a part of many people's identity throughout European history. There's been a push to have Jewish people be blamed for literally anything from literally poisoning wells drinking water to you know they killed Jesus and that's the reason why we have to get rid of them. And I I recently spoke about this on a live stream of mine, which is like the Jews did not kill Jesus, <laughs> like they just the Romans killed Jesus romans killed jesus just please just read just read the new testament for me man just you gotta read it for me there's this incredible anti-semitism within europe and exists in the united states as well and it ultimately leads with a very catholic germany a deal with the pope as well to keep quiet the kind of awfulness that the nazis were perpetrating against Jewish people within, or people even they perceived as Jewish, because you remember it's not even so much people that are practicing in the eyes of the Nazis it's anyone who had a great great grandfather, if you have so much as a fourth in you, so much as a court, like it's just immediately at that point, you're no longer a citizen of Germany and I think that's ridiculous, I think that's wild, and of course any thinking and moral person would, and out of that you also get the UK who's also saying we don't want them here And so we need to put them somewhere. They're these other, that we need to put them somewhere. And eventually it's agreed that within the former British Empire, after World War II, the British Empire is essentially collapsing. After World War I, the British Empire is essentially collapsing. It just can't keep up with the demands that it has and the kind of military commitments that it has. The idea that you just go to a set place, be like, you know what, we do control what would be considered the Holy Land. So you know what we're going to do to two very insular religious minority groups? We're going to put them in the same space, give some weapons, put them out there. We're just going to see what happens. You know, I think it's an absolutely terrible idea. And there is, I, it's from the outside, of course, looking in, but there is this strain of religious fundamentalism that is always played out in the case of, of Muslims, but there, especially within Judaism. In particular in Israel, there people who are known as Orthodox Jews, there is this very insular religious group within Judaism, as there is in every other religion, that seems that that has sort of binded itself to Zionism and has this an entire community, an entire country of people that feel for very good reason (laughs) that there is a world out there, that there are forces in the world that want to do them harm in a sort of collective mass way. It's very hard to negotiate with that because the internal politics of Israel reflect that. Like There are caveats that these Israelis up until recently have had to do when it comes to Orthodox Jews because they do not want their sons going into the military because they want them instead to attend religious schools and participate in family life and all the rest of that. It's reflected in their politics, and I'm just fascinated. I'm not sure whether or not you've ever lived in Israel, but I know you visited a few times. Could you provide like some sort of insight to me as to how does that play out? Like how does that play out in internal politicking? That level of religious fundamentalism, like, they're just they are not going to let this place go because both sides in this case, see it as God gave me this land. I mean, how do you argue with God? I mean, right. How do you reason with people who, who think that God gave you stuff?
1: Yeah. Yeah, right. I mean, one approach is to say, well, it's the same God, right? So, you know, sovereignty belongs to, to God. And, you know, why don't we just share it? But no, not too many people seem to go for that. In Israel, it's interesting. The ultra-religious were not always very involved in politics, in fact, they were not always very committed to the state of Israel or to Zionism. They said that their relationship is primarily a religious one, and that that are not going to that that they would. Some of them said, "You know, look, we'll be ultra-religious Jews in Palestine, or we'll be ultra-religious Jews in Israel, or wherever. That's really our focus." For a variety of reasons, I think a lot a lot of them domestic and having to do with what are the obligations of every Israeli citizen to the state, they've become more and more involved in domestic Israeli politics, and they vote now, and they're a much bigger constituency than they used to be. And the issues that they vote over are exactly some of the ones that you're talking about. So, you know, whether or not they have to serve in the military What kind of subsidies they get from the state less so at least these specific ultra orthodox are they voting on questions of the palestinians but again those questions really aren't coming up on the ballot in one way or another anyway because no one no one dares do that and i mean they don't think that there's any there's no there's no benefit to doing to bringing those issues up if you think that you can't accomplish anything anyway so it's like, why run on compromising with the Palestinians if you don't think that such a compromise is achievable or would, will lead to a, a resolution of the conflict that'll hold? It's all political costs, no policy benefit. And you have to change that calculation and you have to change Israeli politics. And I think the key thing there basically is changing their belief In whether or not there's a Palestinian partner. Because, of course, on the Israeli side, they see it totally differently. The way that the Palestinians or myself believe that actually the main impediment is the lack of an Israeli partner, the Israelis say, look, we've had negotiations with the Palestinians. We've compromised. We've been willing to compromise. Palestinians have never put forward their own plan. You know, the Palestinians are still calling for full right of return, 7 million refugees, not that 7 million left but 7 million would come back which is not exactly you know what most palestinians actually envision for a resolution but that's what they talk about the refugees are are a sacred political constituency and you can't betray them so what we've been doing is we've been we've been talking to the refugees and we've been saying what would you what could you go for what could you go for that israelis could go for as well is there something that could win a referendum on the Palestinian side, a solution to all of the issues that could also win a referendum on the Israeli side. And if there's not, then there's no resolution to the conflict. But if there is, then what is that? And that is what we see as the work of this UN special committee on Palestine, this UNSCOP 2 we're calling it. They come back they talk to the Palestinians, they talk to as many Israelis as they can, they come up with the solution, which we think, you know, actually, if you really drill down on it, there's enough technical overlap that you can find something that a majority of Palestinians will agree to and a majority of Israelis will agree to, but not right away. And you put that to a vote. And once there's that vote, if it passes a Palestinian referendum, it'll totally transform the conflict. I mean, it'll totally transform the narrative around the conflict because it's not just in Israel where there's this belief in no Palestinian partner. It's in the U.S. And this is part of why we don't really pressure Israel to make more concessions is that we don't believe that there is this Palestinian partner. If the Palestinian people have voted on a peace plan and said yes to it themselves, how do the Israelis justify not at least taking it up for a vote? You've know, you got to at least take it up for a vote. And if you don't, it'll be indefensible, and you'll lose the Democratic Party. You'll lose what international support you have. You'll probably even lose some elements of the Republican Party. This would be the Palestinian people saying yes to the two-state solution in Israel. You know, putting their fingers in their ears, but or getting in the to Palestinian
0: face, <laughs> right,
1: or, or in the Palestinian face. So getting to that is what we're trying to do, and the way that that has to come about is that some. Country has to introduce a resolution at the UN to do that, and we've talked to dozens of, of countries, and not a single one, even including the US, has said we don't like this idea or it's a bad idea or we'll vote against it. They all say one thing, which is, well, where's the PLO on this? The PLO has a, a absolute lock on anything that comes through the United Nations regarding the Palestinians, and if they say, yeah, we we think this is a good idea, then it'll come up for a vote and it'll sail through the General Assembly and UNSCOP will be on the ground a couple months. That's all it takes. But they are not willing to do that at the moment. And that's a key focus of our trip, basically, was to try every way that we could to convince the Palestinians that this is the the Palestinian leadership, to be precise, that this is what they should do. To that end, we organized, helped organize a you know a big civil society petition of youth leaders, people in refugee camps, current and former security officials, activists, business leaders, even members of the Palestinian Authority of the Executive Committee, which is like you know the top fifteen people around Abu Mazen. And they signed this petition saying, "Yeah, this is what we want to do." So we're we're trying to build on that. But it, it's exciting. We've I've done organizing for Bernie and for a variety of political campaigns all over the U.S. This is my first time doing this kind of organizing in in Palestine, and it's exciting because it's a lot of the same work.
0: Yeah, I imagine it is, especially if 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 you were able to cross that threshold and even if the closer that you get to it it's that show of support that is possible that would be incredible to to actually have some sort of resolution to that conflict i I don't know if you've read the book goliath life and loathing in greater israel by max blumenthal
1: i haven't read it but i i know i know of it obviously
0: yeah yeah so so i mean so so max blumenthal's politics since that book uh, aside the gray zone aside right um you know that book really opened my eyes the first radicalizing moment for me in my teenage years was the discrepancy between international news reports of what the israeli palestinian conflict looks like and what happens in the united states for me the moment i really woke up was anderson cooper i'm like 15 at the time anderson cooper is standing in front of this building a building that like and there's like five or six people within israel that have of course awfully been killed in this war and there shouldn't be any fighting there's like five or six people he's just standing in front of this building doing a report in all of israel and israel's got the iron dome and they've got this massive military and the united states behind it and most of europe and then you got palestinians shooting rockets and digging tunnels And they've got schools that are disappearing off the map. They've got hospitals that are disappearing off the map. Apartment complex towers that are being taken down by rockets and and F-16s. And it's just like the discrepancy and the idea that it's 50-50. Even worse, it's like a 70-30 situation. And Palestinians are really giving it to Israel. You know what else are they going to do? It's an awful situation. And the reason why I bring up that book is because I think war. I'm not a Tolkien, Lord of the Rings kind of guy. I don't. I, I don't. I don't think war brings out good in people. I don't think it brings out the best in people. I think it brings out the worst and the worst elements of people. And if there's an element of religious fanaticism, regardless of who it is, and there's justified or unjustified, and in this case, both parties feel pretty persecuted. There is a very insular nature to Judaism because judaism isn't about proselytizing (laughs) okay they're not they're not knocking doors not like christians or mormons you know anyone else jehovah's witnesses it's a very insular community it's a very tight-knit community and when you experience a kind of trauma like that i can only imagine what that's like and it being so recent and being so massive particularly on a per capita basis on those who are there because many of them most of them come from europe around that time it's upsetting to me that that kind of politics is plays itself out in that that sort of pressure cooker for palestinians and israelis that there's just this level of paranoia about one another and then on top of that both sides those in authority are benefiting both of them the plo or and also israel also both benefit from Religious fundamentalism and also from fear-mongering about one another. The worst elements in Israeli politics and the worst elements in Palestinian politics are always ginned up, are always exacerbated. And it it leads us to a situation where Palestinians are obviously suffering. People lose eyes on a regular basis. They pull children's bodies from the rubble. It's an abhorrent situation that goes on inside of Palestine, particularly Gaza, and at the same time, I think there's also, I don't want to compare suffering because I don't want to get into that. There's also a great amount of suffering in Israel under this idea that the world is so hateful and that there's so much persecution against against you and that it's played and preyed upon by politicians in order to essentially keep people in line and keep the political project going. I'm concerned for Israel in particular because that sickness really only goes one way until it's, until it's shocked out of you. And the idea that there could be pogroms on Palestinians, the idea that the situation could get much, much worse as time goes along, particularly with Ukraine taking the headlines, it's a situation that's ripe for disaster because there essentially is no resolution to the conflict. Because like you were saying, at one point, Palestinians who control most of the land at that point refused to negotiate back in 47 and now Israel controls most of the territory and they're like well we're happy with our situation and so you're having to try and bring them together how do you if they can be healed how do you see those wounds starting to heal what does that look like does that sort of begin with the sort of organizing that you have or, or is that or, or is your organizing a part of that how do you see that healing process go
1: yeah so for us, Abby, one thing obviously that it underscores is that the be- the best thing for the Palestinians is to have their own state. There's talk about one state, two state, what kind of solution do you want? To us, Israeli politics is not such that you could ever have one state where Jews are not the overwhelming majority and everyone has equal rights. They're just not going to go for that and they'll do anything to prevent that from ever happening. And in the West, we like to, among progressives and Democrats especially, we talk about things like democracy and equality, these liberal ideals that we hold up as sacred. And you talk to Israelis about that and you say, look, if you don't resolve this conflict and guarantee equal rights to everyone, you're going to be facing apartheid. You're going to be facing a unequal situation. It's not going to be democratic. And there's no keyword that you can use that is going to get them to change their view on it. They'll just say, well, if this is undemocratic, then we're undemocratic. And that's where they are. And that's where the world is. That's where the U.S. is. And I think a lot of liberals sort of have to wake up to that These democratic ideals are not, they used to be or what we thought that they were. The thing that you can do for the Palestinians is to try to get them their own state because they'll be safe in their own state. They can have their own rights in their own state. And whatever you think about the right or wrong solution, it's been decades and decades now and Israel's not going anywhere. The Jews aren't going anywhere. And you kind of just have to deal with the situation as it is and see what they can agree to. You're not going to impose your own idea of what the most just solution is. Not in any kind of time frame, at least, that is real or or fair to anyone who's alive today
0: there. When you discuss foreign policy, it's never good news. (laughs) (laughs) The Israeli-Palestinian conflict, never good news.
1: No, very Um, little, yeah.
0: It's, it's upsetting because it's I want there to be a situation whereby Israel wakes up to the humanity of Palestinians and is not engaged in a in a hyper nationalistic, very ethnocentric politics that essentially wants to deny the humanity of Palestinians because it is a imperative because not only is it seen that well, Muslims in the region don't acknowledge our right to exist. So why would we, and by extension, why would we acknowledge the right of Palestinians to exist if they don't do it for us? And also this thought that there could be absolutely terrible implications from beginning peace talks, from actually acknowledging the fact that they're human and the fact that they're Israeli citizens and they have those rights. It's an awful situation because I would like to see one state <laughs> and for Israel to not be what it is, because even Israel just, I mean, let's take absent Palestinians, right? Let's just take that Palestinians off the table, out of the picture. It doesn't really look any better. It doesn't like the, uh-huh. the insularity of the politics. It doesn't look any better. Um, yeah, it looks bad. It looks really, really bad from the outside. Like, the kind of religious insularity, the kind of fundamentalism and fanaticism in any case, United States South, Jesus Christ, in terms of Christianity. United States in general, in terms of Christianity, it is absolutely terrible. In parts of South America, when it comes to Catholicism, absolutely terrible. Last 20 years, 40 years, we've been talking about, quote unquote, Muslim extremism or Islamic extremism. Religious hysteria, in any case, is bad. And unfortunately, in this case, it's justifying. The kind of politics that Israeli has, which is one of just is, is real ugliness, like you know the real news they have back when Paul Jay was there back in like the late 2000s, early early 2000 teens, they have this video series of going on the streets of Israel and talking to people about Barack Obama and people really they people of Israel do not like Barack Obama they do no. and the thing is Benjamin Netanyahu was able really to capitalize on that. And the things they say about Barack Obama are wild. Are just you name it, racial epithets, comparisons to 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 animals. It's just it's wild. It's it's absolutely wild. And the thing is, it's not just. And the thing is, they're they're European. Most of the, I mean, much of Israel looks very much so like Europe, mm-hmm. and many of them are European. People within Israel want to create. An ethnicity, a race of people who are Jewish. And I mean, this is for me outside looking in, far be it for me to pass a, an absolute judgment, but I just don't see how a religion could lead to a race of people. There's nothing in particular that's distinct about quote unquote Jewish people, or in particular Israelis, that make them any look any different than people in Europe. It's incredibly concerning because the people, in particular, that they talk that Judaism reaches back to, people like Moses, you know, Abraham, were not white. <laughs> like I, hate, I really hate to break it to people, were most likely black or very very brown people, and those in Israel. They are not black, you know. They, they, you know, they are not brown people. For the majority of those who are, we can be considered Israeli citizens, and those who would insist that Jewish people are a race for the longest time were doing so in order to make them distinct from white Europeans, in order to other them, in order to cast all sorts of hate and, and vitriol to them. And now it seems that in fact there is an Israeli project. To in fact, yes, people who are Jewish are a race, and that therefore they must protect themselves. And they're creating an ethnostate in order to do so. And the kind of politics that that produces, as I said, absent Palestinians, take them off, you take them out of the, off the table. It's ugly stuff, man. It's ugly stuff. And I'm concerned for that country, because they, they have nuclear weapons. Like
1: they say, they don't. They have nukes. They do. Yeah. Yeah. I. It's tricky because, on the one hand, you're right. There's no. There's no like quote unquote Jewish blood, Jewish gene, what, whatever. Um, on the other hand, unless you know, you're talking to like
0: fucking white knights, <laughs> unless exactly, you're talking to exactly. Stormfront, so fun. it's like,
1: like if, if everywhere else, if you know, in Europe a hundred years ago there is, then it's like well where are we safe how do we sure we're white but like we're not white in nazi germany you know or that's not that's not quite good enough so it's tricky i'm not sure that some of the nastiness in israeli politics is any different whether you consider it to be organized around creating an ethnicity or a religious identity or a national identity to me one way or another it's you know very fierce nationalism, very fierce xenophobia, who's in, who's out. And only way that goes away is if politicians and demagogues are lose their ability to prey on people's fears. And you have to reinvigorate the Israeli left. For years, the Israeli left had one thing that they're really running on, which is that they could negotiate peace with the Palestinians. And that seemed a real enough prospect that they're able to run on it. I don't see any, any way around it. And even when they resolve that, Israel will have its own problems mm-hmm. as states do, as the Palestinians will have, as the U.S. has. But better to deal with that as one thing as opposed to you know also, also a, a crisis in the neighborhood with all the other states. Better to be able to actually look inward because they're ignoring a lot of the internal issues because they're so focused on iran because they're so focused on hamas i have family in in israel i'm secular but I, i'm i'm jewish for whatever that means it's obviously you know it's it's not a race but it's not just a religion it's also a, a cultural identity as well distinct heritage common history and I feel that I have a stake in the one place on earth that's called a Jewish state, because if I'm Jewish and they're Jewish, then you know I, I want to see them be more reflective of my own values. I mean, that's how I enter into it. There's plenty of Jews who would also like them to be a, a Jewish secular state, and there's plenty of, of horrible nationalists who are who are not religious there. You know, there's plenty of very secular nationalist politicians there who are not great. So there's, there's all kinds of overlap. And there's religious communities who are happy to share the land, you know, like I was talking about before, who really say, you know, as long as I'm safe in Palestine, I can be a Jew there. Like, it doesn't matter. But yeah, at the end of the day, I come back to the same thing of when there's a safe Jewish state living side by side next to a safe Arab state, safe Palestinian state. Then there's a lot more opportunity for harmony between Jews and Muslims, between Israelis and Palestinians. And we've seen this work in Jerusalem, actually. It's mostly been a history of it working. Millions of Palestinians are in Israel every day. And by and large, it's peace. It's not great, but it's peace.
0: I don't have answers. I don't have a definitive understanding. I do not you know where I live in the United States South. I was raised very fundamentalist Christian. I am not so and have not been since I was like 12 years old. I was not raised, and you bring this point up exactly, which is like, you know, in Nazi Germany, we're not white. In many parts of Europe, absent the Nazis, with this creation of whiteness, Jews, I hate saying the word that, because it's just like white nationalists have made it such an ugly word, and whiteness overall has made that word so, it has made it almost an epithet. Jewish people because there are so many different kinds. It's not a singular group of people, right? Jewish people throughout Europe are castigated, are, are sectioned off, othered because of their religion, because of their culture. I'm not a person who is who, capable of making judgments as to who is what. That's not my interest it's more for my own understanding of how that congeals because it is such a loose term even though there are people who are very anti-semitic who definitely want to make that as firm as possible about who quote they are and then there's also very fundamentalist very people who consider themselves zionists nationalistic figures even secular figures who want to make who quote-unquote jewish people are very firm for those who would be Jewish people who want to make that very solidified often so want to do so, the right-wingers, the religious fundamentalists, the nationalist fanatics, want to do so in reaction to that feeling of persecution. It's, it's that European conception of race that has just fucked everything up. <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's just, that has fucked so much up, man. In any case for nuance, it's, it's just, it goes right out the window. You know, and as I said, nothing in is in this is particularly quote special about Israel. Like nothing about it is quote unquote different. This stuff happens in the United States South. Like we had apartheid in the United States South. Many people still argue that we do. Like this stuff happens all over the world. Yeah. It's just my concern is, is that now there are United States up until you know, as of late, in particular, people like Reagan and George W. Bush, for Christ's sake, and then Trump was not set up to be a Christian nation. It's is, is not set up to be an ethno state around Christianity. I mean, you talk right. about, you know, whiteness. <laughs> yeah. But in, in the case of Israel, it is fundamentally based on this identity of who, as you said, who's in and who's out, who would be considered. An, israeli and who's not and the basis of the israeli identity is someone who is a jewish person right whatever that is practicing non-practicing cultural however someone defines that but and that's sort of the internal politics of who they are and it's just it's it's concerning to me that there is a country that has license to do whatever it wants by the united states and has a population that's captive like Palestinians. And it has such an impact in the region that has the internal politics that it does. That's the reason why I have an interest in Israel. Not because there's something different about, quote, those people. <laughs> like, it's, right. not, it's, it's not where I'm coming from But it. it, It's a concern of mine because that country has a blank check. And United States protection. And possibly, most likely, nuclear weapons. And whenever it feels threatened, it assassinates scientists from other countries it bombs other countries airports as we were discussing earlier because it feels like it that day because it plays out in their internal politics because the united states isn't going to say anything and they can do what they want war is a concern of mine religious fanaticism is a concern of mine and unfortunately it's it just seems that that um that that israel just has is a country that you know has a lot of pain in it as i said that collective trauma i don't even want to i literally don't know it I literally couldn't understand it if, if I wanted to. And I can only imagine the kind of justifiable uh, suspicion of the outside world that people within that country could harbor, that Jewish people around the world could harbor. I'm just, I, I'm awestruck by that situation. Very awestruck. And it's interesting to, to to understand your work as a means to try and get that two-state solution. Do you... As I said, I would hope that that situation, that they could be integrated, you know? It's just, coming from the United States South, my understanding of two different countries is like, no, actually, we're one Mm -hmm. country, and that's how that's going to go. United States, we fought a civil war over that, and in fact, no, we're going to be one country, and you are going to treat other human beings like human beings. They are people, and that's just too bad. You're going to have to get over it. From the American perspective, of course... That's the way that I view the United States South, and when I view racists in throughout American society, that's you know you don't you don't like the fact that there are black people are That's too bad. That's far too bad. In the case of Israel and, and Palestine, that's not the United States South. It's not the United States. It's not the same history. It's not the same people. They don't have the same trauma, and it's not the same culture. All of that, right? Do you think? I know you, that you're working towards a two-state solution because you see mm-hmm. that as a path to peace. And I know peace for you is something that you're aiming for, some form of justice. Do you aim for the two-state solution because you believe that that's the right way to go? Or do you believe that that's the quickest path to peace?
1: Well, I guess the way that I'd put that is I think the quickest path to peace is the right way to go. That I'm not. I won't say what the solution should be two peoples, you know, when I'm I'm an American, you know, first and foremost, whatever they can agree to by they, I mean, all of them, you know, all of the Palestinians and all of the Israelis can agree to, I'm not going to oppose that solution if they can agree to it. And to me, the thing that can win a referendum of the Palestinians and a referendum of the Israelis is some form of two-state solution. Israel obviously is nationalistic. But the Palestinians have national aspirations as well. They desire a state and they were promised a state by the United Nations. And the quest for a two-state solution is as much a a quest for a safe and prosperous national home for the Palestinians as it is for the Israelis, for the Jews. That's, I, I guess, how I would put it. At the same time, what there has to be are equal, full equality, full equal rights under the law and equal treatment under the law in both Israel and Palestine when there is such a state. And even under a two-state solution, no one's envisioning all of the millions of Palestinians, of Arab citizens of Israel leaving Israel. They'll have a choice if they want to be residents of Israel who vote in Palestine or Citizens of Israel, whatever they want to be. But in every solution that I've seen, they still stay where they are. And the quest for them to have equal rights and be treated equally, I think, will be eased by putting an end to this question of, of you know, how's this all going to shake out when they're not viewed as like a, a fifth column, basically, within within Israel.
0: It was awesome speaking with you, Max. You're at the head of an organization who's pushing for the Palestinian Peace Initiative. You're known as the Peace Consultancy. I'm really glad that, uh, that you're doing the work that you are. It's complex stuff. And from an outside view, it's not so easy to see the nuances that, that are there. I'm really glad you were able to speak to me.
1: Thanks so much, Armando. It was really a pleasure.